episode of the Minimalist Podcast is brought to you by nobody because yeah, advertisers do suck. If you're listening to this at home, they have masks on. They are much more enthusiastic than that. Um, it's just hard to, to... Although we're in L.A., so there are actually quite a few people in advertising in here tonight. I'm, I'm sorry. Um, you're part of the problem. I, hey, I was part of the problem, too, at one point, And um, who knows? I don't know if we've, uh, we've uh, repented for all of our sins yet, Ryan. We have a few more lifetimes here. By the way, I'm Joshua Fields Milburn. And I'm Ryan Nicodemus. And together we are The Minimalists, live in Los Angeles. You know, we, the last time we did an event in L.A., this is a hometown show for us, but this is the first time it's a hometown show for us. We moved here yeah. five years ago just after the last event that we oh, did yeah. in Los Angeles. That's right. No, yeah, it feels awesome, man. Uh, I'll tell you, especially coming from the East Coast, like where it was 12 degrees, yeah. 13 degrees. I have never loved L.A. so much from when we got off the plane <laughs> after that leg. <laughs> We've got a special guest for you here tonight, so without further ado, you know him. Well, you know him from our podcast. He is one of the, uh, the favorites. Um, you know him from his own show called The Fundamentalists, although tonight it's really about the fundamentalists. I think I just heard someone pass out in the crowd. They're so excited. <laughs> he is a theologian. He's an author. He's a philosopher, and he's a good friend and one of the brightest people I know. Please welcome to the stage our good friend, Peter Rollins. Yeah. So, Peter, Ryan had a, uh, a children's cold recently, and, and uh, it wasn't COVID. Uh, I just call anything that's not COVID now a children's cold. Yeah. <laughs> and um, we brought you into the studios. Me and you, we had a conversation about nihilism. Yep. Cheering. Very lighthearted. Yep. And, <laughs> and in that conversation, one of the things that I remember you said, and I thought it'd be appropriate since we're... We're here in Los Angeles. You said one of the reasons you moved to Los Angeles is because it's the most religious city in the world. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And um, I was a bit incredulous. <laughs> what the hell did you mean by that? Yeah. So, you know, uh, religion offers wholeness, completeness, certainty, satisfaction. And in Los Angeles, there are priests on every corner promising you can be whole and complete if only you look a certain way, purchase certain products, do CrossFit, eat kale, drink kale, whatever you do. Um, so there's a, there is the tyranny of happiness uh, in LA. We're tyrannized by it. And um, I came to LA because I want to free people from the tyranny of happiness, to bring some existential despair into people's life for <laughs> alcohol and money, pretty much is, is what I do. So yeah, because Soren Kierkegaard once said, he said, there's the despair of not knowing you're in despair. You know, where you're like, you're going out to a party, it's late at night, you're all partying, and everyone looks like they're having a great time, but 
you feel like at two o'clock in the morning, if you just turn the lights on, just turn the music off, and everyone had to look at each other for 10 seconds, everyone would be crying, you know? We're, we're in despair and don't even realize it. I mean, I say to some people, you know, I'm not trying to make you depressed. You already are depressed, you just don't know it, right? Um, and the first step is realizing it, yes. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's weird because um, you kind of, uh, like if you go to a party in Los Angeles, you know, you, you pretend to have a good time, but in a normal party, you can go to the bathroom and have a wee cry or something, but in Los Angeles, there's no space to escape from the happiness. You go into the bathroom and they're all doing cocaine. You know, there's no escape <laughs> from happiness. It's like, so there's a philosopher, um, Shizak, he talks about this, right? You get, a, you get a traditional set of parents, right? And they say to their kid, you have to go and see your grandma. And the kid says, I don't want to see grandma. And they go, get your coat on, get in the car, you're going to see grandma, right? And then you have a modern LA parent, right? Very kind of progressive. And they say to little Johnny, you got to see grandma. And Johnny says, I don't want to see grandma. And they sit down and go, oh, well, you know, grandma really loves you. And you know you want to make grandma happy. Come on, you, know, you want to do it, don't you? This is an absolute nightmare, right? Because first of all, if little Johnny says no, you know they're going to revert back to strategy number one, get your coat on, get in the car. But here's the worst thing, is like in the first example, little Johnny can at least have a, have a space of rebellion within himself, going, I have to go and see grandma, but when I'm old enough, I'll do what I want. In the second example, there's no space for rebellion. You have to literally... Uh, enjoy what you don't want to do. And that's what it feels like in Los Angeles, is we have to pretend to enjoy. There's no, there's no rebellion from the tyranny of happiness. Yeah, anyway. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> it, it reminds me of something that um, Anthony DeMello was talking about. He was at a party, and he, he said that uh, he, uh, he wanted to leave so he could finally get the smile off of his face. Yeah. And... Um, of course, that's not a smile at all, right? And, and that's the, the weird sort of paradox of all of this. And I think one of the things that's going on now, and it, I think it's been exposed over the last five, four years, but especially in the last two, we've noticed a lot of division. And, uh, and that's what's so beautiful about being able to come to an event like this. You know, I don't care who you voted for. I don't care, you know, what your political party is. Um, I don't care what you think about certain political issues. <laughs> but Pete does. Yeah. Um, and there's an intense sense of righteousness here. Yes. <laughs> no, and, but we can come together even, not despite our different beliefs, but with our different beliefs. And you grew up in a place that, we were backstage talking about this, but you grew up in a place in Belfast that... I mean, in order, and it was, uh, for those of you who don't know, Belfast, especially when, when towards the tail end of, well, towards the tail end of something called the Troubles was when Pete was growing up, and literally people were killing each other over ideologies yeah. in a way. But it seems to me that we're seeing a lot of that same, the same ingredients that lead to that divisiveness now. Yeah. I mean, the most ironic thing is all throughout Belfast, there are what they ha have called peace walls throughout the city to keep the Protestants and the Catholics apart. And even when you cross the border, if you're going across the border into in Northern Ireland, they'll ask you, are you Protestant or are you Catholic? And if you say, I'm atheist, they'll say, well, yeah, but are you a Catholic or a Protestant atheist? Yeah. Yeah. And um, because yeah. we feel, 
we cling to that division. I need to otherize you in order to make me significant. Yes. Can you shine a, a bit of a light on that divisiveness and yeah. sort of how we got here? Because you saw it firsthand and now you're seeing it again. Absolutely. So there's a thing most of us know about. It's called purity culture. And purity culture, sometimes in America, it's all about who you have sex with or not, right? I think that's what purity culture means here. And funnily enough, in the religious world, um, they created a technology to help young people have sex, which is called a purity ring. So you put it on, and it says you're not going to have sex, which makes you really want to have sex with the person. Because th this is the it, prohibition generates desire, right? You know, that whenever some kid says, I want a puppy for Christmas, and the parents say you can't have a puppy, then the kid's not going to go, oh, that's fine. They're going to go, I really want a puppy. I really want a puppy. And the more you say no, the more the kid goes freaks out until you get the puppy and then what happens they're walking it for a week and then two weeks later they're not and you have to drown it in the bath right so the problem is I had a funny childhood but the um you know so the prohibition generates that kind of one story very quickly about this um a guy, New York guy very very expensive lawyer like kind of lawyer you go how much do you cost ten thousand dollars for three questions really yes what's your third question so he's um <laughs> He's hunting in Ireland, uh, duck hunting in Ireland, right? Just on his own, de-stressing, hits a duck, duck falls into a field, and he's climbing over the fence to get the duck. And this isle guy, this isle guy in a, in, a, in a tractor called Seamus is driving past, right? Seamus says, oh yeah, what are you up to, sir? This New York lawyer gets really angry. He says, mind your own business. And then Seamus says, no, no, no need to get uppity. You know, that's just my field there. That would be trespassing. And the lawyer says, listen, you try and stop me from getting my duck, and I will sue you. I will take everything you have. Well, anyway, Seamus says, well, no, 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 sir. He says, I don't know what they teach you in those fancy law schools in America, but round here, we have a thing called a three-kick rule. So what's that? So well, I kick you three times, you kick me three times, I kick you three times. You go back and forth, first person to give up. They, the other person wins, right? <laughs> so the lawyer looks at this aisle guy and thinks, absolutely no problems. So Seamus gets off the tractor, limbers up, and then kicks the guy in the side. Oh, that guy's like, oh, really sore. Then kicks him in the stomach, and he's bent over, and then kicks him right between the legs. Bam, on the ground, absolutely winded. And the guy gets up, dusts himself down, looks at Seamus. Seamus says, I says, it's all right. He says, you win. You can have the duck, right? <laughs> now, the thing about that is the prohibition not having the duck makes the duck really desirable. Starts fighting. As soon as you take the prohibition away, you're like, why am I fighting for a duck, right? The, the prohibition generates this excessive desire. Um, anyway, so the point is, uh, we have uh, purity cultures. And, you know, and purity culture is not just about sex. Traditionally, it was about what is clean and what is dirty, right? What's clean and what's dirty? And uh, we live in a revival of purity culture where we're always working out what is clean and what is dirty. What should we have within and what should be put out? And the, we are very difficult. In fact, we find it difficult to, um, to, into, to kind of like have a dirty space, to kind of like kind of dirty things up. And that's what I see in a secular kind of way, that we're always... So one more story about this very quickly. is This Irish guy, you might have heard of him, called Seamus, right? This Irish guy, Seamus, he's in a, he's in a plane. And the plane crashes on a desert island. He's the only guy on the island. He's there for 10 years. And what he does is he's there for a long time, so he does a clearing, and he starts to build. And he builds a few things, whatever. Anyway, eventually, he's rescued. People rescue him. They're about to take him off the island. They say, Seamus you've got to show us how you lived for 10 years with nobody on the island. And Seamus says, ah, he says, okay. He says, here's the clearing. And shows him these three buildings. And says, that first building, he says, that's my house. Lived in that. 
very good. He says, what's the second building? So he says, I'm a very religious man. Very religious man. That's my church. So that's very good. He says, what's the third building? He says, oh, I don't want to talk about it. He says, no, what's the third building? He says, no, no, I don't want to talk about it. Let's go. Come on, what's the third building? He says, well, he says, that's a church I used to go to. Terrible place, right? So <laughs> the end is, we always want to externalize our own, our own uh, doubts, our own questions onto the other. We have this desire to purify ourselves and create something that's, and see the other as dirty and wrong. So I saw that in Northern Ireland firsthand this purity culture, how it drives us apart. And here's the problem. We are living actually physically with a virus, right? So dirt physically. We're thinking about contamination. Uh, Politically, we're thinking about contamination. And then technology. Have you ever noticed technology is always about purified spaces. So if you watch sci-fi movies, they've got that Apple morgue aesthetic, right? So we're creating virtual reality spaces that are purified spaces where I don't have to encounter anything but mirrored reflections of myself and my own position. And potentially, this might not, and this is a controversial idea, be the best thing. We might have to start mixing with people who think differently to ourselves. <laughs> Otherwise, we might go the way of Northern Ireland, and that was a bit of a mess. I love the Northern Irish. We're very, we, we play things down. We had a 30-year war, which like, killed so many people, and we just call it the Troubles. Oh, it was just the Troubles. Just the Troubles. Oh, it wasn't too much, the Troubles. But yeah, there you go. They're purity culture. Mm. Yeah. You know, it, it's funny because... There's this moralizing undertone to certain things, depending on what crowd you're in. Even the word dirty, right? Yeah. I mean, what, what is dirt? what's the dirtiest thing in the world? Dirt. The thing from which all of our food grows is, is even like moralized as being bad. And depending on what circle you're in, certain buzzwords can mean you're either part of the team or you're not part of the team. And it allows me to be sort of superior to you in a way, which is yeah. all nonsense when you really break it down. Yeah, and we, we end up splitting. So splitting is where we create goodies and baddies. Uh, the paranoid schizoid position, Melanie Klein called it. Um, and it's the, this position is very natural for us to want to do this, to split the world into, into right and wrong goodies and baddies. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with it in a sense. Like, see, when you break up with someone, it's very common for a person to go, that person is awful, terrible, the worst, right? And they're doing that to protect themselves from suffering. There's some pain and, and, and sorrow, and they haven't been able to mourn. And if you're a good friend, you don't go, yeah, you're right, I was terrible. Or, and you don't challenge them either. What you might do is you listen, and you listen to them slag off the person, you listen to them say all of this stuff. And maybe the person was an asshole, who knows, right? You should see some of my exes, right? So, um, <laughs> then, but eventually, you, um, you, uh, you know, the other thing is weird, like whenever you break up with someone, you always fantasize that they're having a really good time, party, and having a great time. They've got everything while you're collecting urine and balls. Very depressing. With <laughs> tinfoil hat on. Anyway, so um, what you do is you wait for a bit until you see a little bit of, a little bit of weakness in your friends. You know, a little, a little, some symptom that says that they're ready. And then you might just go, you know, I, I just think you're really hurt. And if you say it at the right moment, they'll go, yeah, you know what, it's true. And, you know, they weren't that bad. And to be honest, I probably have, it's probably partly my fault as well. Now, I don't even want to say that's a morally good thing. All I'm saying is that if you do that, 
war becomes conflict. So uh, comedian Dylan Moran from Ireland said, war is the inability to have conflict, right? When you can't have conflict, you have war, you try to kill someone. Conflict is where you can sit in the room with them back and forth. And at the moment where you can go, okay, maybe they're not all bad and I wasn't all good, you're more likely to be able to have another relationship with somebody else. And maybe one day you'll meet them on the street and you'll be able to go up to them and you'll be able to shake their hand and you'll be able to go, listen, I'm sorry. Like, you know, we had some good times and some bad times and I, all I want you to know is I wish you the best. Well, we are here for you all tonight. This is your night. And so we have set up a microphone here. Here's what usually happens. Someone has to break the seal. You come up here. And then we'll get to however many questions we can. Generally, we can't get to them all. So coming up sooner than later is, tends to be your best bet. You can ask questions about whatever you want. If it's minimalism, simplifying, that's fine. If it's something more esoteric or philosophical, great. If you don't want to ask about you know, whatever. Who's wearing the underwear today? That's fine, too. <laughs> Howdy, come on up. Oh, yeah, I guess we got we to gotta figure this whole situation out. We got a little out. obstacle yeah. course going on right now. <laughs> the prohibition generates the desire. There you go. <laughs> so, yeah. For those of you listening, he had to hop a turnstile somewhere. <laughs> Great, now he's getting kicked out. <laughs> <laughs> I never liked the look of him. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Low mic. You know the, the yeah. hazards of being six foot one. Anyway. Thanks. Thanks for coming up. What's your name? My name is Gene Williams, and uh, my question is: My fiance is an amazing second grade school teacher who's been teaching for twenty years in the LA Unified School District, and oh, yeah, they love her. But she's done. Uh, even before the vid. Uh, she was starting to feel the grind, but this has really crushed her soul. Mm. And she's got nothing left. Mm. Um, She's actually texted you guys about this, and and they responded. Um, What did I say? Was it profound? (laughs) Clearly not that profound, but... (laughs) Stop bothering us. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) New phone, who dis? (laughs) She is... uh, She's incredibly fit and has a ton to offer the world in terms of fitness, and she's a brilliant mind, and she's considering shifting fields into physical fitness, Mm. but she's holding on because the benefits, the health and insurance benefits of being a teacher. Mm. And despite the fact that she goes to work every day and is crushed and comes home exhausted and miserable, and her kids have to drive an hour each way to school, she's considering continuing that for eight more years just so she can hold on to those benefits and nothing else. Mm. And my question is, is that something we should be doing? Is mm. it, should we be passing up on our joy and our passion and the things we have to offer for the security of knowing, hey, I'll have health benefits for the rest of my life, regardless of the fact that I'll come home dead to the world and to my own children? Mm. Yeah, it's, it's like you want to um, keep yourself alive so you can suffer longer, <laughs> right? Oof. Well, first off, I, I want to applaud you for, for having this realization now, because even be able to, to articulate it, because our school system is so, so screwed up, and it's not because of the teachers, I mean, some teachers, but, <laughs> I mean, let's, let's be honest, right? Uh, the entire system, though, is predicated on an old model, and now teachers, unfortunately, have to teach the things that they're forced to teach, the curriculum they're forced to teach. 
And um, it's, it's a giant problem. And the bigger pro sort of micro problem here with respect to your situation is what? Well, if I walk away, I'm also walking away from these other benefits, right? And the question that I would ask myself in a situation like that is, what would these benefits cost me? So let's say it was, I don't know, $500 a month. Okay, that's a lot of money, right? But am I willing to stay at this soul-crushing career for an extra 500 bucks a month? Or would I rather find that $500 somewhere else through downsizing, through spending less, through budgeting, by making more income supplementary in a longer term? How can I put myself in a financially stable situation where I can afford those things that I think I need? You know, and the thing is, you may not need all of those things also, right? So what do you need? What do you want to carry forward? That was the best thing about leaving the corporate world. I didn't leave the whole thing. There was 10% I was able to tweeze out of that and all the lessons I've learned from that. Public speaking was one of them. I was terrified of speaking publicly and so I started working in the corporate world. If it weren't for that, I wouldn't be doing this right now. And so there are things you'll be able to tweeze from that and move forward, but the answer was already in your question. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Do you have any insights? Yeah, I know it's, it's, it's such a tough one because... The, a lot of the system is designed to make us think or need to continue to be in the system. There's lots of things I would love to talk at length with her. But, uh, you know, sometimes, for example, um, it causes ill health to do a job that you don't like. So you end up paying for health benefits that you're going to use that the job generates because you suffer so much every day that it, you get fatigue, stomach issues, bad backs. You're, you get symptoms because you don't like what you're in. However, it is difficult to navigate the difficulties of these situations of like, can I afford to leave? You know, what will it do if I've got kids, I've got family? So I empathize with that. Um, but I love what you're saying. I mean, it's in some extent, I think that sometimes if we really know that we want to, to go in a certain direction, even if we feel and it doesn't work, we'll still be glad that we made that decision, you know? So sometimes I think of it, like, is it a situation where even if I fail at doing this, I will be happier that I tried it and failed? And if I can say yes to that, then I guess I, go, I do it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, amen. Oh, man. You asked, like, what should you be doing? Or what should she be doing? And, you know, there really isn't a should. It's, it's going to be different for every person. Like, I think about when I left my job, well, I got laid off, so I didn't, really have, I didn't really have a choice. But I knew it was coming, and I, I saved up some, some money, and um, I, was, I was able to have just a little bit of a safety net to kind of you know, keep me afloat, keep the lights on, put food on the table. Um, that, that year that I got laid off, I think I, I made over six figures. Um, the following year, I made $23,000. And I'm telling you, like, I have never been happier when I made that. Because I had, I had a little bit of an exit plan. I had a little bit of a strategy. I wasn't, it's not like I had, you know, 50 grand sitting in the bank. I just, I had enough to get by. But the happiness that I got from that was so worth it. And the crazy thing is, 
is I traveled more. That was in 2012 was that year. I made 23,000 bucks. I traveled more in 2012 just in that one year than I did leading up to that point in my life because I had the freedom to, I mean, we were sleeping on people's hardwood floors and sleeping in my Toyota Corolla. Um, so it was, it was a little uncomfortable, but it was so joyful. It was, it was really, really awesome. So yeah, it's, it's totally possible to give up those benefits and, and just have something more sitting on the other side. But I, I just want to echo what Josh said. Like, if right now I, say, I said, hey, um, you know, if you pay $6,000 uh, in $500 installments over the next 12 months, that'll free your wife from being a teacher. Like, that, it would absolutely be worth that amount. So it's, I, I think Josh had a great point, like, considering what it's actually costing you. Because in the talk, remember I talked about like, hey man, these costs, the monetary, that's just one aspect of it. That's just one, that's just one aspect of it. There's time, there's attention, there are so many more resources than money. And uh, yeah, I, I, would, I would look at those other costs, not just what you're paying now, because it's with health, but what are you gonna gain too? Thank you, thank yeah. you so thank much. You. <laughs> question I asked myself when I was walking away from the corporate world was, uh, when would now be a good time to leave? Mm. (laughs) Howdy, what's your name? My name's Austin. Hey, um, Austin. And first time, or long time listener, first time question asker. Um, And before I get into the question, just want to thank you, Josh and Ryan. Uh, You guys have really impacted my life a lot, a lot of value. And just, it's admirable that you guys choose to add value to people, like, every day. That's just... It's cool. Thank you Thank for that. Thank you. Appreciate that. Of course. So I hope this isn't too up for interpretation, but it is up for interpretation. What question do you wish... It's okay, I brought an interpreter. Yeah. <laughs> um, what question do you wish that you... What question do you wish someone would ask you? Why, why do you ask that question? I, I don't... I don't. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I, I don't. I mean, because yeah. c- here's the thing. I want sincere questions, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and so usually it's the questions lead to some sort of suffering. There's, yeah. there's, the question's never about the question, by the way. Oh, how do I let go of my sweater? Okay. <laughs> it's never about the stuff. I mean, Ryan and I are the minimalists, and we talk about stuff 20% of the time, right? That's the Trojan horse that allows us to talk about all of these other things, yeah. right? So... What's your real question, Austin? So, I'm going to be honest. I thought of so many questions, and I thought that was a good one. I'm going to change it up. <laughs> well, you know, Austin, I, I honestly wish that... <laughs> I wish people didn't have questions. I mean, honestly, if anything, it's like... Because we're, we're all healing in some way, and we all have our different wounds that we're, we're trying to, you know, heal. Mm-hmm. And I'm so grateful that Josh and I get to be a part of any of that. But... Man, if we did our jobs perfectly, world peace, baby, and no one would have any more questions. <laughs> and also, whatever question you ask, I will answer it the way I will. I will say what I want to say. It's hilarious. The more you do this stuff, someone asks a question about what's your favorite dog, and I can make it about anything I want. So whatever question you ask, I will just take it in the direction I want. I guarantee it. Watch, watch it. It's very subtle, but you'll notice. I, I prefer you to. All right, so All right. question part two. <laughs> what is a through line of qualities that you see in people that you love deepest? 
Define qualities. I'm not sure what you mean by okay, qualities. Okay, qualities like someone listens, someone that yeah. is reflective, or someone that cares for you, or, or is compassionate, whatever it may be. Yeah, yeah. Um, so when I love someone, it has nothing to do with their qualities. And unfortunately, we, we misunderstand love. I talk about this in the book a little bit. Uh, Dr. Christopher Ryan talks about the, the three things in a, that make a relationship thrive, it, it, specifically an intimate relationship, but this is applicable to any interpersonal relationship, I think. It's love, compatibility, and chemistry. And so when you think about chemistry, that's usually like the early exciting part of a relationship, like, oh, you know, I'm really going to know each other. Another way to, uh, to think of that is lust, at least in an in, in intimate relationship, right? And so that's an important part of a relationship. And I think quite often we downplay the chemistry and even the interpersonal chemistry of friends. The reason Ryan and I work so well together is we don't have the same qualities. We don't have the same personality. We don't have the same beliefs. We don't have the same politics. But we have a particular chemistry here and maybe even a particular lust. <laughs> um, Those are nice biceps, man. <laughs> They're on loan from God. <laughs> no. <laughs> anyway, the, the, the other part is love. And we really don't understand love. When most people say, I love you, they don't know what the hell they're talking about. And it's unfortunate, right? Because um, I love my wife, right? But I also... Love my walk-in closet. And it's like, well, wait a minute. What do you mean by that? We don't mean love in those situations. What we're talking about is that's a type of like, right? To love someone is to see them for who they are without trying to change them. And that's why it doesn't matter to me what your qualities are, right? If you're compassionate, wonderful. I like that. Although you can be compassionate to a fault. You can certainly be empathetic to a fault. I think em empathy is a dramatically overvalued virtue in many cases. Um, it often leads to more suffering in our lives. Now, it's not to say that, that's not saying empathy is a bad thing. We all have empathy, right? The problem is we don't see people for who they are, and so we try to change them. Well, there's another line in the book. You can't change the people around you but you can change the people around you. I'll just let y'all sit with that one for a while. <laughs> I think maybe the most important thing in a relationship that we really screw up, though, isn't love, and it's not chemistry. Those things are easier than this other part, compatibility or like. I go around and tell my wife I like her way more than I tell her I love her. Because here's the problem. It's possible to love someone and even experience a great chemistry with them, but not like that person very much. And that's where we get into a lot of trouble. And that's where you talk about these qualities. Yeah, you may not like every piece of a person. There are certain things that Ryan does I don't like at all, and there are certain things I do that Ryan doesn't like at all. But I love the whole person, warts and all. And, and I, I mean, I didn't mean that literally. But. Stop telling them about my warts. <laughs> I, uh, I love the whole person, regardless of, of what I like. But yes, if, if I dislike a, a piece of a person, 
I don't try to change them. Instead, I look inward and I, I find ways to accept them for who they are. Yeah, yeah just biting off that to say something I want to say <laughs> is, um, uh, yeah, this, this idea of, you know, how do, how, what does it mean to say you don't want to change someone and that then is what changes things? Um, the word for that, one of the words for that is, is grace. So whenever I, um, you know, we, we all live between who we are and who we'd like to be and between what we have and what we'd like to have. We live in this difficult space and um, we're always being told how to get to, you know, what we want and be, be who we can be. Grace is this moment where you go, I don't have to do anything. I just accept that I'm not okay, you're not okay, that's not okay, and that's okay, right? So grace is this weird thing where you meet, it's the opposite of self-help. It's a self-help book which starts off and go, don't do anything. You go, well, well, then no one would change, right? But the weird thing is, the more you try to change, often the more difficult it is, the more you find it difficult. Um, so an example would be in therapy. The true example of someone was, they were sleeping around a lot, they felt guilty about it. They thought, well, at least I feel guilty about it. Because if I didn't feel guilty about it, I'd be doing it even more. They felt guilty. They said, maybe I'll get an STD. Maybe it'll cause problems. But at least I feel the guilt. But in therapy, um, the therapist began to help them get rid of the guilt. And of course, the worry is, if I get rid of the guilt, then I'll just do this more. But as they got rid of the guilt, the desire to transgress also disappeared. So weirdly, the more, so you got rid of the guilt completely and she was able to have much healthier sexual relationships. So weirdly, the very thing that you think is stopping you from doing something is actually what's provoking it. Um, grace is the opposite. Grace is the point where you go, I don't want you to change. You don't have to do anything. And then weirdly at that point you go, oh, and then you can begin to change. So even in something like AA, there's the 12 steps, but before you have the 12 steps, you have step zero. Um, just like in Europe, we have zero floor. You Americans start on the first floor. It's always very confusing, yeah. right? Zero is a number. Zero is one, because you can count it. Um, but is, uh, so step zero is, um, is uh, where you're just in a room of people who accept you for who you are. You just go, you're, you just name that you're an alcoholic. You don't lie. You don't make excuses. You just say it in a room that doesn't ask you to change and just goes, yep, I hear you. We're in the same boat. And if you can experience that grace, then, then it becomes easy to make changes. Otherwise, what happens is if you say you're an alcoholic and then you, through force of will, just stop yourself from being an alcoholic, right? You'll do something worse. I've seen this in LA. You'll take up CrossFit. I've seen it. One day, <laughs> honestly, one day you're drinking whiskey, the next day you're flipping tires. Terrifying. And um, because... You know, the alcohol is not the problem, it's the solution to your problem. And if you don't look at the, the problem that's causing you to drink, right, you'll just find another thing to, to fill up. Yeah. So uh, what you need to do is a place of grace where you can allow the truth of your fears and anxieties, the truth to come to the surface. You shall know the truth, the truth shall set you free, right? You come to know the truth, to be able to speak and know your desire and be honest. In a community of grace, it just allows that to surface. And then you find yourself changing in the very space of not needing to change. So that's the virtue. Grace is a great virtue I like. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. yeah. Um, thank you. Um, I'll tell you how I... Uh, killed relationships in the past. Um, expectations are really something I try to not have. Um, high standards, like you want to have high standards in life, but when it comes to a partner having expectations, it's just like a recipe for disaster. 
And what would happen is, is I'd have, you know, my partner, I had this expectation, they're not supposed to leave a dirty dish in the sink. I don't know, something like that. And then I go and there's a dirty dish in the sink. And then I'm just like instantly upset. They know I don't like dirty dishes in the sink. They're disrespecting me. And all of this, this uh, angst, I would start to project because I felt disrespected because of this expectation. Um, well, what that does is it, it actually, uh, it, it causes you to lose compassion for that person. And, it, and it's really interesting how some of the people we treat the worst, well, first off, ourselves probably is number one. But then number two is like our loved ones. Because A, we know that uh, they gotta be there. You know, they're, that's family. They can't, they can't not be my family, so I can act however I want. But the other thing is, is because we love that person so much, and when we feel disrespected, it, it hurts us a little bit deeper. So um, I think a virtue that I really try to have, regardless of um, romantic relationship, uh, business partnership, friendship, is really coming from a place of compassion as much as possible. Like that is always going to, that's always going to strengthen a relationship if you can find that, that, that context of compassion. And one thing on that, just very quickly, sorry, but I know you're not an obsessive, but, uh, but obsessive neurotics, and often men are obsessive neurotics, right, will have a very tidy house um, or something like that, and then they don't like a dirty dish, right? They don't like something that stands out. Um, but it's not because... There's a, they don't like the disorder that's in the, the room. It's that they don't like the disorder that's within them. So like an obsessive, he collects magazines and they want to fill all the gaps in the magazines, one to a hundred, and finally they get number 13 and they fill the last gap. Then they realize the gap is not in the magazines, the gap is within them. And so sometimes knowing yourself and knowing ourselves allows us to be more compassionate because we realize the things that we hate in the other are disavowed parts of ourselves. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks, Austin. Howdy, what's your name? Hi, my name is Natalia. I am uh, one of the patrons, and Aww. I get a lot of value from that. You can so swap patrons, you. by the way. I, they, I'm a patron. You can just give up, I'm, I'm give up their it. Patreon, <laughs> move over to mine. You're, Fine. <laughs> totally. You're part of the funda minimalist now. Yeah. Yes, oh, that's, that's right. good. That's good. Oh. Um, so, my question is. Um, I've considered myself for most of my life an extrovert, but during 2020, that was really hard for me because, you know, I had to stay home and I couldn't go out and miss my friends and everything. So I felt myself transitioning into an introvert. <laughs> so I'm like getting to know myself, like enjoying solitude. Like I identify with Josh more now. <laughs> um, so my question is, how, how can I sit with the discomfort of every day because not every day is exciting like I would want it before like I used to plan things I used to look forward to like going out and meeting people so now I'm like wow every day is boring and like that's like that's life you know like you can't yeah. escape it and I'm with myself all the time mm. so aside from hobbies or, or things that I enjoy like help me be present <laughs> mm. man yeah, you know, it's, it, what comes to mind for me is you have this expectation that life shouldn't be boring. And it, it took me a while to realize, like, oh, boredom is, hey, it's really a privilege to be bored when, it, when you kind of lay it out there. Yeah. Um, but being able to deal with that boredom, like, that, that's a superpower on its own, too. Um, yeah, I, 
Isn't it awesome getting to like being an extrovert and then learning how to be with yourself though? Because yeah. I, re- I remember, so we moved to Missoula, Montana, uh, nine years ago, 10 years ago. And uh, like Josh would go and like go to a restaurant and eat by himself. Or he's like, hey, I'm going to go see a movie. And I'm like, oh, cool. Like, what are we seeing? He's like, no, no, I'm going to go see a movie. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, you're going to the movies by yourself? Like, I thought he was a psychopath. <laughs> Or, yeah, or, yeah, 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 or a high-functioning sociopath, one or the other. So, but, but I, what I really started to see was, was someone who liked to be with themselves. So I, I started doing these things, these experiments that were so uncomfortable and so boring to, to, to try and like me. And, you know, now um, I, I could totally go see a movie by myself. I could go have a meal by myself, like... That's something that I'm really grateful. I mean, I have uh, an amazing wife now, so and we we were around each other all the time. So now, um, yeah, I, I, I'm an extrovert, so I love having someone with me. Yeah. Um, I was telling Josh, I'm like, maybe I'm not an extrovert because I'm kind of digging this 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 time alone at home. You know, during the the pandemic, he's like, yeah, you're alone with someone. <laughs> <laughs> he thinks being alone is like ten or fewer people. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So. You know, how, how to be present. Yeah, there's mindfulness stuff. There's meditation. There's breathing. There's a million different ways to, like, you know, uh, uh, to try and appreciate the moment. But, like, trying to be in the moment is always going to take you out of the moment, too. You know? I mean, it's, be in the moment right now. Like, that's just not going to work. But being more and more comfortable with that boredom, I, instead of expecting yourself not to be bored, I would really try and find an appreciation for, for that, that, that boredom. Pete, it seems to me there's a, an undertone of um, disapproval or even like antipathy toward certain things. So we say, I, I used to be excited, and that's good. Oh, okay. I mean, the Buddhists would tell you that excitement's the same thing as suffering, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, they would also say hope leads to suffering. So I don't know how much truth you want tonight. We can give me all the we truth. Can, we, we can dole I, I, it out slowly, right? There's like I tried a tr- to give up coffee so I wouldn't be so excited all the time. <laughs> Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll start with like a truth drip tonight, maybe. Um, but then we hear about boredom, and there's this undertone of, of, well, it's a bad thing, right? Excitement, good, boredom, bad. I remember at the beginning of the pandemic, my daughter, um, who's eight now, um, I think she was six at the time, and um, <laughs> she, uh, that first week or so, was coming to me, I'm bored. I said, well... There's no such thing as bored. You're boring. <laughs> and I did that for about a week, and she's never since ever said she's bored, right? And the reason being is she started to figure out, like, oh, I, I can do things that I want to do. I don't have to wait for someone else to do something that I find interesting. Now, what you and I find interesting may be different from what Ryan finds interesting, but there will be moments where, like, if I'm doing something where I'm like, that's boring as hell. But to me, it's supremely interesting. So what is interesting to me, it's, it's completely perspectival. Yeah, I love all of that. I, what I'm interested, because I, I miss it. Are you saying that you're happy in this introverted state? Or you're kind of, you're saying you're kind of getting dissatisfied with it? So uh, before the pandemic, I consider myself an yeah. extrovert. But now I had to adjust. So yeah. I find myself 
turning into an introvert. Like I'm getting to know myself more than I've ever known because before I think I, my identity was with my friends. So now I'm like, who am I by myself? Yeah. Because I mean, because the funny thing is, like, going to a party is sometimes the most introverted thing because you know you're not going to actually get any deep conversations, right? You go to a party, and, and whereas people who are introverted, what they often like is really deep conversations. So they're actually extroverted, but they just don't get those really good conversations at a party. So, um, but you've so you're enjoying this new this new space. You're just wanting to be more to enjoy so it even deeper. I'm enjoying it, but I feel like. I find myself reverting back to wanting yeah. the excitement. So uh, my question is, yeah. how do I sit with the daily solitude when I'm not in the mood necessarily for solitude? Oh, yeah. Well, it sounds to me like solitude has become more compelling to you. Yes. If you were compelled by solitude, then follow that compulsion, right? Okay. If you are not compelled by like Ryan, he's not very, there'll be times where he is, but most of the time he's not. It would be absurd for me to be like, well, you should really spend more time by yourself, Ryan. Because that's not what is compelling to him. And so there isn't a prescription here. It's about what is compelling to you. And if in the moment you're like, I really want to be around some people. There are plenty of people who would like to be around you. Thanks for your question. Thank you. you. Hi. What's your name? Jeanette. Hey, Jeanette. Hi. Okay, so what advice do you have for someone who's already doing something meaningful and that they love? For example, I'm in mental health. It doesn't pay enough for the L.A. lifestyle. So, you know, I'm a recovering shopaholic, and you guys have brought a lot of value into my life. And, you know, I listen to you guys regularly. I have the books. But I guess what would you recommend so that I stay on track or don't lose hope? because I'm already doing something that brings value to other people's life. You know, how do I stay focused or stay, you know, keep that hope knowing that I have debt from school? Mm. I, I um, have a degree in psychology and like I said, I'm in mental health mm. and I work with low income families so the pay isn't that great. Yeah. You said what you do brings value to other people's lives, wonderful. Does it bring value to your life? It does. Do you find yes. great meaning and purpose in what you're doing? Yes, I love it. Beautiful. That, that's, that, that's outstanding. And so the only other question I have for you then is, what is the L.A. lifestyle? I was going to say, why L.A.? Because <laughs> L.A. is not cheap. Yeah. Yes, so, you know, eating um, healthy, paying for the rent, keeping, you know, your insurance on your car. L.A. is just pretty expensive. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. I, mm-hmm. I, I, by the way, so I come from Northern Ireland. It's a very different place. If you've got money in Northern Ireland, you look like an idiot. It's really bad. It's like I had a friend, he made a lot of money in San Francisco. He came back to Belfast and he, he had a Maserati, a Mazatwadi, right? And I was like, and he, but, but here it looks normal and good and it looks cool. In Ireland, we look like idiots when we drive a Ferrari or a Lamborghini, the farmer driving down the wee country road with a Lamborghini. It looks ridiculous, right? So there's not... There's not, like, you know, having a lot of money, you can't buy anything. You can buy the best meal and it's still, like, 50 quid or something. You can't, you can't, whereas in L.A., no matter how much you make, there's something bigger you can buy. Like, there's $80 million houses, whatever. But also, um, you know, it, uh, there's not that disparity. But I, I realized when I came to America, I lived in a squat for ages, unemployed for ages, but it was easier because um, I didn't have a lot of school debt maybe having to pay for health insurance a lot. So I understand this. 
it's that's very very difficult mm -hmm. um so it's very it's not easy for me to say oh yeah you know like you can just like there's so many debts and so many commitments that you have but why are you in LA as in, are you married here or you you work here like could you move to a cheaper place in the country or do you love Los Angeles so that's my goal my no. goal is to move into a tiny house eventually out of California so yeah. Um, you know, um, I've come to the realization that I don't need much, thanks to you guys, and, you know, I love it, and I'm spreading the word, but I think that right now, since I have to pay off that debt, I'm stuck here until I feel like, you know, I feel anchored here. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Well, you, you'll pay off the debt much quicker elsewhere. I mean, th that's the first thing. You know, we're from Dayton, Ohio. And I mean, it's like the second cheapest place in the country to live, right? Mm -hmm. And that was where we made $23,000 a year. If we would have made $23,000 a year here, it would have been a different... We would have moved to Dayton. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And especially if you have debt, I mean, because what you're really talking about here, that's why I asked that question. Does it bring great meaning and purpose to you in your life? Because if the answer was no, then I'd say, well, then we want to find something else. But you found the work that you want to do for the foreseeable future. Yes. And... That work is location independent. I mean, I know there's a lot of mental health issues in Los Angeles. Yes. <laughs> but there's a lot of mental health issues everywhere in the country. And so if I'm in your shoes, and this is not me telling you what to do, but if I'm in your shoes, I'm finding a place where I can pay off debt as quickly as I can so I can free myself up. Because the freer you are, the more possibilities you'll have. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Well, one thing, by the way, practical, I mean, is like figuring out like, you know, like communal living, could you move with, live with, like there's lots of different things to think through. And, uh, you know, sometimes like I, I lived with friends and other people sometimes when I didn't have very much money. And so there's lots of, pra so we should talk after we all hang out and find out a way to, mm -hmm. you know, to do it. But, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, man, I don't have any advice, um, but I'll recommend a couple things. There's a book called Total Money Makeover. By, I have it. Okay, great. Yes. So you have a plan to pay off this yes, debt. Yes, I do have That's a plan. That's incredible. Okay, so um, you already have that. Scratch that recommendation. The second <laughs> one I have is, have you heard of the FIRE community? F-I-R-E, Financial Independence Retire Early. They I got, are. I got introduced to it from the podcast. Yeah, so they are. they are, it's a great community who, you know, Pete and me and Josh can talk to you and, and come up with ideas, but there's a whole community of people who are in your shoes trying to get out of the same exact situation. I, I know there's a fire community here in L.A., um, but, you know, finding a, a community to support you and to also get some ideas from, I mean, that's going to help you get that paid off as soon as possible. I want to applaud you for, like, pay, paying off your debt and attacking that because the new American dream is being debt-free. Exactly. Yes. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Hi. Howdy. Hi. What's your name? Uh, Natalie. Hey, Natalie. Yeah. What's on your mind? So um, earlier you alluded to the dangers of polarization of ideologies, like um, more specific, like not being able to sit with conflict because without conflict, without being able to sit in conflict in a safe space and respect, respectful space leads to war. And yeah. with like the ever-changing times and things such as like cancel culture being so prominent, I just wanted to know what your thoughts were on cancel culture and how to navigate those spaces when feelings are very high. 
Yeah, uh, so so I don't. I think ca- cancel culture is a bit overblown, right? I mean, the only people who truly get canceled are, are usually people who do some pretty hideous things. I'm not so sure about that. So that's good. That's good disagreement yeah. right here. Yes. That's good. <laughs> that's that's good. Although now, he to be is fair, wrong. He would have disagreed with whatever I said. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I, and we'll get to that in a yeah. second because I do want to talk about cancel culture. I, I think there 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 may be some elements there, but yeah, we might disagree on this. But here's what I will tell you: We were just uh, in Washington D.C. On January 6th, uh, we had a tour stop there. There was an insurrection of love. And um, there were four of us on stage. It was me and Ryan and our friend T.K. Coleman and a guy named Ken Coleman, who you've probably heard on the podcast as well. And I realized, I didn't get to say this on stage there, so we might as well talk about it here. All four of us voted differently in the last election. And... That's never even come up between us, right? Now, the underlying things, not our beliefs, but our values, those things come up all the time. And yeah, maybe Ken has a different path to get to the same values, but we end up there anyway. And so I think putting yourself in those spaces, not to disagree, not to agree either. I don't want to just be like, oh, yes, yes, that's right now. Um, because then you don't feel good. You don't feel authentic, right? But what if I just want to hear you? What if I want to hear your point of view? Because it, whether or not it sways me, it gives me another perspective from which I can live my life. Now tell me about cancel culture. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, here's a couple of things. I'd love to... This is a great question. I mean, it's on a lot of our minds. Um, you know, one of the things that disturbs us about people who think differently to us... Um, is not so much that they, that they are other to us, but they expose our own otherness to ourselves. And what I mean by that is, if, if you believe something different to me, I either want to consume you, which is like if you eat something, it becomes part of your body, so I want to make you into my social body. If I can't do that, I want to vomit you out. I want to get rid of you, put you out of the community. Uh, just like a child puts something in, in, in her mouth, and if she can't swallow it, spits it out. Or we could tolerate each other, like let's not talk, let's just kind of like work and whatever, but don't tell me your strange ideas. Or, hey, beneath all of our differences, we all, you know, are, 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 are taking from the same stream. Now, I think that's the worst one, right? Because in, in all four of these, in the first three, I'm right and you're wrong, and in the fourth, hey, we're both right. What's most interesting to me about the other is that I think you're strange, monstrous, and weird. And then I see myself through your eyes, and I'm like, I'm a bit strange, monstrous, and weird, right? Like, I thought that the way I did things was completely normal, but, oh, now I see myself through your eyes. I'm decentered, destabilized. That's a bit, that's a bit weird, and that's a powerful experience. So it, it, sometimes I imagine, what would it be like to have a debate? You're, say, Democrat, I'm Republican, and we, instead of having a debate where you're the Democrat, I'm trying to make you Republican, you're trying to make me Democrat. I'm saying to you, listen, I have no idea why you're a Democrat. I don't understand that. I don't understand why you're not on my side. Help me see myself. What am I missing? And then you're the same. You're, going, you're never going to make me into a Republican, but I must be missing something because I think you're nuts. What, do you, what, what is it that you see in me that's a bit weird? And then we become instruments of each other's further conversion. Now, one other thing I wanted to say about this is a great example. I'm, not a, I'm, I'm an apocalypticist, right? An apocalypticist, not a progressive, I'm an apocalypticist. Um, a progressive person often knows where they're going and where things are headed, right? 
And so if you love someone who thinks differently from you, it's kind of a bit of a patronizing love because you know where things are going and you just kind of are nice to them, but you kind of know where it's going. And apocalypticist, apocalypse means the incoming of something you cannot know, right? It's the income, it's the end of one world and the beginning of another. So an apocalypticist, you go in and you don't know what the future looks like. All you know is that you have to engage in the conflict. So in the Good Friday Agreement, the, the conflict, the troubles ended because all sides were going like, we need to get into a room together. And all sides had to go, we don't know what it's going to look like on the other side of this. We just need to engage in the conflict. And through this engaging in the conflict, the Good Friday Agreement or the Good Friday Accord was signed that was apocalyptic, that nobody could have imagined, that involved the disbanding of the entire police force, it involved the changing of, uh, it involved lots of crazy things you would find hard to imagine. Um, and, uh, oh yeah, and uh, just one example concretely. If you're in a relationship, right, and you've been going out for a long time, and there's all of these underlying issues, and you're not talking about them, right, and, you know, there's an affair, and someone's overworking, and the symptoms are coming out, and the child wetting the bed, or an anorexia, or in heart disease, the, the symptoms are there, but nobody's talking about them, right? A symptom, by the way, is the truth that you cannot speak finds a way to speak, right? So, you know, whether it's stomach issues, or fatigue, or whatever, a symptom... Uh, which in French sounds like Saint-Homme, which sounds like holy man, which sounds like prophet, which tells you the truth. Your symptoms tell you the truth of your life that you cannot face yourself. So the anorexia, whatever, tells the truth. Anyway, you go to an analyst. Now, the analyst technically says, doesn't say, I know where your relationship is going to go. They go, I don't know, and you don't know. Maybe you're going to talk about stuff, and you're going to end up together. Or maybe you're going to end up not together, or maybe you're going to split up with the type of relationship you have but stay together, which is the most radical one. Often people break up with a person but never with the type of relationship they have with people. So they end up having the same relationship with lots of different people when the more radical thing is to break up with the type of relationship you have and less maybe stay with the person. Anyway, the point is you don't know what's going to happen. All you know is if you raise the conflict to the surface and you all speak it out and you all put it out, something's going to happen. You can't stay the same, a, a new future is going to arise, a post-apocalyptic event is going to happen, and that is kind of what I hope for, is that we all kind of are a little bit more apocalyptic in our outlook and go, all I know is that engaging in the conflict is important, and, uh, and, and if we do that, something novel will arise, novelty is important, I don't know what's going to look like, but something's going to arise that's novel and new. Mm. Yeah. I, I do want to talk about cancel culture yeah. a bit. <laughs> I, think, I think I'm... I, whatever question you ask me, I'll just say what I want to say. Yeah. That's what I said, you know? <laughs> no, that was, that it's was a great technique. Perfect. You just answer whatever question you wish yeah. was asked. Yeah. I'm like in the middle uh, between okay. you and Peter because yeah. when it comes to cancel culture, I, I have seen people get canceled where I'm like, you're the bastard. Uh, but then other people, I'm like, oh, that's a shame. Like they, so, I mean, but can we, uh, maybe let me get concrete with it. Because, yeah, yeah Harvey Weinstein, cancel him. But he's right. not being canceled. He's being put in prison. So, like, if that's what we're talking about, great. Yeah. Um, the, the, the justice system canceled him, right? Yes. But who were we talking about? Who has been canceled unjustly? Um, and what have they been canceled from? I, and the reason I'm asking this is because quite often what we see is that you have a YouTube creator who has been demonetized. And it's yeah. like, okay, so what? Like, first off, yay, now you can't run fucking ads on your channel. Yeah. Right? But, but also, like, 
So what? You expect that some major corporation, they're supposed to curate advertisements on your behalf? And because you said some things that were incendiary that they didn't like, of course, if a corporation doesn't like you, they're not going to support you, right? And so I think quite often, maybe the way that I would say it is, is this cancel culture stuff is overblown by people with megaphones who say, oh, I'm, I'm terrified of being canceled. Well, you're not owed anything by these major corporations. And if you want to be in bed with these gigantic, major, multinational corporations, you got to play by their rules. If you don't, then, well, then you can do what Ryan and I do. We're not beholden to anyone. And because we're not beholden to anyone, I don't have to watch what I say. I don't have to worry about, I mean, we don't even monetize our YouTube channel because I don't want to have to worry about that. Yeah. 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 So the answer is, uh, yeah, if you don't like cancel culture, just don't be cancelable. <laughs> don't, don't put yourself in a position where you can be cancelled. Yeah, do don't, do don't, don't partner with anyone who can cancel you. Yeah. How do you feel about cancel culture? What brings this up for you? Um, I was more like focusing on the underlying, well, what I think are the underlying issues where if, if we are so quick to cancel, and I don't have anyone in mind, but if we are so quick to cancel someone that we kind of break that there's no bridge between being able to have a conversation and understanding, not that we have to agree at all, but just having that safe space to be able to discuss so Mm. that we can learn and kind of meet halfway. And if we just cancel immediately, we kind of break that tie and are not not able to rebuild that connection, wherever that may lead. Well, you know, the the biggest problem, like I see with cancel culture is, you know, we we put our politicians and we put uh, CEOs and whoever else, movie stars, we put them on this pedestal like they're supposed to have this level of morality that that uh, th- that gets them to deserve to be on this pedestal, mm-hmm. and the fact is, is like none of us are really on a pedestal. Very few of us. There might be some exceptions, you know, uh, Jesus Christ, the Buddha. Like there might there are some exceptions that maybe you can put on these pedestals, but the problem is the ninety nine point nine 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 percent of us cannot put ourselves on pedestals. So I think that's problem like problem number one. The second thing is when we, when we participate in cancel culture and, you know, we, we become part of the crowd and, you know, we, we, we feel good when we see someone get canceled, what we're doing is, is we are really eliminating the opportunity for someone to, like, grow and to learn from, like, past mistakes that they've done. Now, there are certain mistakes that you're going to go to prison for. It doesn't matter how long ago you did them. But, you know, but unfortunately, you find some off-colored joke 10 years ago on Twitter, and now we're going to cancel that person. I would much rather have uh, someone in a, in a position of power that screwed up, that was a shithead, and then totally learned how to not be a shithead anymore. Like that, I respect way more <laughs> than someone who's up on a pedestal. So, I mean, when it, that's, that's, that's one of the major things, um, yeah, problems I have with cancel culture. Pete. Pete, I, I don't know, man. I think that person who tells that 10-year-old joke or whatever, I don't think we actually end up canceling them, though. Like, I, I don't think that's really a thing that we're... There are some people who pretend to be outraged, so maybe the real problem is this sort of recreational outrage, and now that uh, I can pretend that I'm upset about everything. Mm-hmm. Here's the truth. No one has the power to upset you. No one. Only you have the power to upset you, right? And, and so... That is true, and and yet we think, oh, this person really offended me. They really upset me, 
and therefore I also need to react to it. I need to do something about it. If that's what we're talking about with, with canceling, then yeah, I totally get it. The, the mobs of people who get really, really easily upset, sure, that's, that's one thing. But um, they, if someone gets upset at me, I don't have to be upset back. Oh, and by the way, just because someone's offended doesn't mean they're right. <laughs> Yeah, this is, this is, this, we could be in, like, shut the doors, we're in all night till we get this sorted out, okay? <laughs> um, yeah, so taking, like, just a kind of different angle from the, you know, the, the immediate kind of cultural kind of issues is, I do think that there is this notion of projection that we, we all know about, and what projection often is, is we often take the parts of ourselves that we cannot bear and we cannot tolerate, and we put them into the other, and it's an interesting thing where our own disavowed face, our, our, own, um, our own weaknesses we see in someone else. And then projective identification often means that they start to act. So the way that we project onto them. So if I keep saying to you, you're angry, and you're like, I'm not angry, you're angry, I'm not angry, you're angry, I'm not angry. You're like, yeah, you are angry. So what I've done is I've projected my own you know, intolerance onto you, and then you've identified with it, etc. I do think that and just in general in society, the more we can come to know ourselves and the more we can be gracious with ourselves and come to know those disavowed parts of ourselves, the more we will be able to, I think the less we will uh, want to get rid of others and difference. So I, w I do want to see a society where in a sense, there is, a, there is conflict, there is, uh, we're become aware of how we project, and I think that can create a healthier kind of society. So I think, uh, but that's a very broad notion, yeah. Thanks for your question. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Thank you. Howdy. Hi. What's your name? Maya. Hey, Maya. Hi. What's on your mind? Um, so I first found you guys' podcast uh, when I was ending a, a relationship that had past expired. Um, and I, so I live on my own. I, uh, I live very modestly and I've always kind of been like that. I'm not, uh, very motivated by money, which is kind of like, um, not the way, like the LA lifestyle, I guess, like she was saying, like most people are. And I, and, um, I'm proud of all the things that I have, like my studio apartment. I'm proud that I can, you know, support myself and live there. I have like a 2005 Nissan Sentra. I'm happy that I can get to where I need to go. Nice. But I still, um, sometimes I feel shameful because um, uh, my friends and family use expressions like they want more for me. Like I feel a little bit of shame that I don't have nice new clothes and I feel like it makes people feel bad for me, but I don't feel bad about it, but I, I can feel that and people like give me things and, and that is like a whole another level of thing. Um, and I feel like it bleeds into like my like relationships also because like my friends are like, what about this guy? He's got his life together. He's got money, like you should like him. And so I, I find myself like having all these like uh, conflicting ideas and um, I was wondering if you guys had any advice on that. Yeah, I was at, we were at the uh, San Francisco airport this morning and um, I was sitting at a table with podcast Sean, who's hiding in the shadows back there somewhere. Yeah. And we were talking about, like, uh, Judd Jordan, who's also around here. He's filming uh, this. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, Jordan, no more. 
Um, Jordan has some uh, neighbor person who keeps like putting weird notes on his door and, and judging him for his lifestyle. I'm going to leave it very vague. Um, and uh, at, at one point you realize that every judgment is a confession. And so when these people say, I want more for you, what are they really saying? They want more. Yeah, judgment is a mirror. And they're confessing that they want more. If they were in your shoes, they think they would want more. Why do they want more? Well, because of the pursuit of happiness. If I just get this, then I'll be happy. But they're also recognizing, like, oh, I'm not that happy with this stuff. But maybe she would be with this stuff. Maybe she'd be different. But if you bake the, you'll bake the same cake if you follow the same recipe, right? And so it's funny. There are some other terms that were thrown out there. Back in our corporate days, Ryan and I were always thought of as, because you said some guy had his life together, right? People would say that we were very anchored people, right? Which sounds like a great compliment. Oh, yeah, we are anchored. But then you realize, what the hell is an anchor? It keeps the ship from being going anywhere. And so realizing that these are all confessions that people have about themselves. They're telling you something not about you. They're telling you something about them and their own shame. Mm. That's very good. Yeah, thank you. And I, and I thought then on like the most precious material in the world uh, is not water or gold or anything like that. The most precious material in the world is desire. Like we desire the desire of the ones we desire. So what... what what, whenever you desire, you desire the desire of the other, right? This is a very basic kind of concept in psychoanalysis, and there's a guy, René Girard, talks about it. But, but what that means is you see a lot of adverts where what, what we learn to desire is where the desire of the other alights. So when you're in an advert, somebody really likes the new car, and then we start to desire the new car because they do. That's why we start to desire the partners of people that we desire, and you know, gets us into all sorts of problems. So um, jealousy is where we desire what the other person has, and envy is where we desire the type of relationship that person has with their object. So for example, you're jealous of someone if you, if you want their partner, you're jealous of the partner, uh, you, or you're envious if um, you do want the partner, but you want the type of relationship they have, right? These things. And th it's all about desire. Anyway, the reason why I'm saying this is um, because of these mirror neurons, we desire the desire of the ones we desire. Um, we are caught up in a really weird thing. So there's, also, there's a parable Shizek tells, this philosopher Shizek. It's a parable about this guy who thinks he's seed, literally thinks he's seed on the ground, and he goes to a psychoanalyst. And after years of psychoanalysis, he realizes he's not seed. He realizes he's a human being, right? And that's great. He goes home, he's cured. I'm a human being, I'm not seed. Um, but about six months later, the analyst hears a knock on the door and the guy's there and he's sweating, he's crying. And the analyst goes, what's wrong? And he says, well, he says, my next door neighbors have got chickens and I'm terrified that they're gonna eat me. And the analyst goes, but you know you're a human being, don't you? And he says, well, I know I'm a human being, but do the chickens know, right? <laughs> now, the really weird thing is that we can often know that money will not bring happiness, but the advertisements don't know. It's like we don't believe it, but we still act as if it does. We know that having a new car won't satisfy us, but even though we know it, we're still caught in its trap. We still feel its power because of this desire structure. And one more story very quickly, but this guy, Seamus, who you may have heard of, he's, a, he's in this bar 
And he always goes to the same bar and he orders four pints of Guinness every time, every Friday night, four pints of Guinness, drinks them in and leaves. Eventually the barman one day asks him, says, Seamus, you come in here every week, four pints of Guinness, what's the deal? Seamus says, well, he says, I got two brothers and a father and they're in different parts of the world. And it's a little ritual they do and I do where I have a pint for each of them and one for me. And the guy goes, that's lovely, lovely Irish ritual. Anyway, year goes past, Seamus comes in and he orders three pints of Guinness. And the barman says, as he's poor, and he says, I don't want to pry, but like some, something happened to one of your family. Seamus goes, no, no, no. He says, no, 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 it's fine, it's fine. He says, doctor's orders, I've had to stop drinking. Right? <laughs> now, they, so he is immersed in the very thing that he thinks he's not immersed in, right? We are the ironic, we are immersed and we're caught up, even though we know in our heads, right? So in, what, what's the answer? Very quickly, in one sense, is to find a different liturgical structure. So we are all liturgical creatures, and is to find people who don't desire that type of thing. That's why a lot of you are into the minimalists, because what you find with the minimalists is you desire their desire, right? You, with you, you like these guys, and, you, and something about the podcast is desirable, and their desire alights not on something, but on nothing, which is really interesting. Nothing's a really interesting thing, right? Um, uh, <laughs> You know, with the invention of zero was basically drawing a circle around nothing and making it something, right? And um, you got evolutionary theory, which is the antagonism within biological reality. You've got, uh, you've got uh, quantum indeterminacy, the non-at-oneness of, of, of reality with itself. You've got uh, Godel's, anyway, anyway, so you've got all of these nothings. These guys have a desire for kind of nothing, and that probably has made some of you have felt relief because their desire for nothing kind of like is liberating. So on a, on a basic thing is going like, how do I not surround myself with the desire of advertisements, the desire, like LA's full of it, all this, it's constantly telling you to desire things. And even if you know in your head, it's still you feel it. So it's how do you find friends and that liturgical structure in which the, the, in which desire is not for something to fulfill the lack, fill the lack, but rather for the lack itself. Thanks for your question. Yeah. We'll try to get to uh, a couple more. I know we're, we're running short on time. They will kick us out eventually. But how many people do we have in line right now? Four? Yeah, four. Ooh. You can do it quickly. I'll be... We'll, we'll do our best, but I, uh, no promises, all right? Howdy, what's your name? Hi, my name's Kenya. Super can, can you come up a little bit? Oh, yes. My name's Kenya. Hey, Kenya. Super excited to be here. I love you guys. Thanks, Thanks for being here. here. My, uh, my question is in regards to... You can come up a little bit closer. Yes. <laughs> I'm usually go. loud in my own bed. Awesome. My question is in regards to navigating through the guilt that comes from having access to the conventional American dream, but not necessarily wanting it. I think I moved on from the phase of judgment for wanting less. Like, I don't really care for that too much. But the guilt definitely still knocks on my door from time to time. And I'll share a little bit of my background. So for context, I was born and raised in Mexico. I was brought to the United States when I was a teenager to literally chase the American dream and have more and accomplish more. And so I did just that. And like, if you Google my name, you will find like Kenya, American dream and all these things that I've been able to accomplish. I got a full right scholarship to college and went to USC's business school for almost free for graduate school. So then I came across the art of letting go on TED Talk from you all. So. Mm. Luckily, as I was finishing grad school, instead of feeling that pressure of, well, now I have to earn more and chase the next promotion and have more, blah, 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 mm. I started to minimize 
everything that I have to now I'm literally moving out next week. Everything I own fits in one carry-on luggage. Wow. I have a Vespa. I don't even have a car. So wow. I'm everyone here, and you all can understand how like fun and freedom like that is. However, given my background, there's definitely a level of guilt that tells me like I have access to having a job that is going to pay me the money that I need to support my family, which is part of the thing that you come here as a first-generation immigrant for. And instead, all I have is one carry-on luggage, and mm. I'm going to move somewhere else a lot more affordable so I can focus on my own creative projects, which mm. is going to be risky and unstable. So that guilt is still there, even though I know I'm doing the right thing, but just mm. given that I came here for the American dream and I don't want it, navigating through that guilt has definitely been... Well, you know, you got to do what your shirt says there. You got to be intentional. You're right. She just wears her shirt every day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. But, you know, the question bef before uh, had to do with basically other people's expectations. And the worst, one of the worst things you can do is let other people's expectations rule your life. That doesn't mean to be callous and not consider other people. But when someone thrusts an expectation on you, especially someone we love, we feel like we have to pick that up and carry that. And, and I mean, am I correct me if I'm wrong? But is it it's is it because of the expectations of family? And I think that's like the expectation I also have for myself. Mm. Most importantly. Oh, well, that's even better because if it's your expectation, mm -hmm. you can let that bad boy go. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hey, Pete, I, I I noticed this dichotomy. It actually played out in Kenya's question here because at first she was really excited when she was speaking from her perspective. She said. Everything I own could fit in one bag. And then she's talking from her family's perspective. And yeah, but uh, they see that everything I own, it only fits in one bag. Yeah. And you could actually see the guilt unfolding there. And you could almost yeah. see the source of it in a way. That's absolutely. So we are, we are inhabited with other people's desires. This is very, in psychoanalysis, is like, because this is why you can desire what you don't desire. It's very weird. Like, I, I knew somebody, she, was, she got into law, but she really wanted to be an artist. But she also wanted to do law because she did law. But she was actually in, in, infused with the desire of her father to be a lawyer. So she didn't desire what she desired because there's other desires that are within us. And, so, and it's weird. So here's the weird thing about psychoanalysis is the idea is if your father dies... It doesn't mean that your father has died within you. You know, that your father continues, to, your father and your mother's desires continue to live within you. So you can feel these push and pulls of these different experiences. So, yeah. 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 But I, by the way, this is what I meant at the beginning. I said, we need, it's great to be able to be free to pursue our happiness, but we also need spaces where we are free from the pursuit of happiness. That's also very, very important. So um, these deserts in the oasis where we're freed from that pursuit. So it's great to, and this is the thing about, like I, when I first came to America, I came to America some a very beautiful, wealthy family were my patrons for a few years. I went from this squat in Belfast to one of the wealthiest places in America because they believed in my work and it was lovely. But it, I saw behind the curtain, I saw the American dream for what it was because I, I was with some of the wealthiest people in the world and they were so happy. No, <laughs> and there was as much misery <laughs> there. It's like, I mean, because even the winners lose. It's not that the, the winners are lose as bad as the losers. The losers win doubly, but even the winners lose. Imagine having a system where the losers really lose badly, but even the winners lose by having melancholy, right? What is, so depression is the sadness of not getting what you want, and melancholy is the sadness of getting what you want, right? Because you no longer desire what you desire, which is, 
Imagine uh, there's lots of people who love to look at houses. They want a nice house. They want to go and buy a house. And they're looking through the magazines. They're looking on the computers. They're wanting to buy a house. But as soon as they buy the house, they, they don't desire what they desire, the thing they got. Because actually, it's the obstacle to the desire which allowed them to desire it, which is called the object cause of desire. What they really desired is looking through the magazines, saving up the money, doing the work. Once you took the obstacle to the desire away, they no longer desired the desire that they had. So what you have to do, and it's really interesting, mix is both desire go, go for things and also have obstacles so here's i never understood sports very quickly because no one ever wins right no one ever wins football like they win a game or even they win the super bowl and then they do that every four years or whatever i don't know but no one ever wins football no 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 it just goes on forever it honestly it just goes on no one's ever going to win the football that they're i guess that's what they're they're fighting for just, just goes on and on. But then someone said to me, and I think this is a really good analogy for a better way of design, is actually, well, one is if your team always won, you would find that it's not enjoyable, right? Because you have to, it's the, the team losing as well. As, as, and the, the enjoyment is in the struggle and being with your team. And of course, the odd win. The odd win's great. But the odd win with enjoying the losses, enjoying what you don't have. There's a great book called that by Todd McGowan. Enjoying the kind of, the not having, and, uh, and, and because if there's a great, um, that final thing, there's, there's a great uh, Twilight Zone called A Nice Place to Visit, where this low-life criminal gets shot, wakes up, and this guy called Pip says, oh, you're in the afterlife. Here, come on, I'll show you where you're going to live. Pip's very unsure, and he goes to this big mansion, and Pip takes out a, or the, the guy takes out a gun and says to Pip, give me all your money. The guy goes, what? Why are you trying to shoot me? He says, you can have as much money as you want. And hey, you love gambling. Go to the casino and you'll win every game, right? Of course, after about six months, he starts to crack up, this guy Valentine, and phones up Pip, says, I'm going crazy. You know, I win every time at the casino. And so Pip says, well, what percentage would you like to lose? And he says, no, it's not like that. Like, he says, I shouldn't even be in heaven. And of course, Pip says, what makes you think you're in heaven? This is hell, right? Um, which is... Of course, the, the best horror, one of the best horror films ever made is Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Because at the very end, you know, where Willy Wonka, with that evil demonic smile, says to Charlie, don't forget what happened to the little boy who, uh, was it, who got everything he ever wanted. He lived happily ever after. How horrible is that? That's terrifying. It's disastrous. So we need a little bit of the not having. So yes, free to pursue your happiness, freedom from the pursuit of happiness, and realize that we're infused with the desire of others, and we have to kind of unpick those. And... Yeah. That's beautiful. Kenya, if, uh, if you want to live a nightmare, follow everyone else's dreams. Mm. Thanks. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thanks, Kenya. Howdy. What's your name? Hey, hi. Uh, well, uh, name is Willie. And, um, hey, I'm, Willie. And I'm at the East Coast. Well, I was born at the East Coast, so I like the cold better. <laughs> hey, I love snowboard, man. Yeah, me too. Yeah. What's on your mind? Well, basically, first, uh, I promise not to make, to mention a question like anything stupid. <laughs> because I'm like the copy of Deadpool. I got no filter. <laughs> it's all good. Yeah, but... Um, What's your question? My question is, um, how do you make a conversation like... Um, how do you make a conversation that everybody will feel um, it's comfortable 
to actually talk in a circle. Because, um, ooh, I'm nervous. <laughs> because, um, because like, if I have a question, because I like asking questions, and then, you know, there'll be like, a, you know, like a group of people that will get like, really, really like in a bad mood or actually like offended. Like, for an example, like, um, like there was a person that asked me, uh, um, you uh, going to vote red or uh, actually blue? And I mentioned, well, it actually depends because, you know, I, I need to look who's actually going to be president and what's going on. Mm. And they told me, no, you have to vote blue no matter what. Mm. And I was like, uh, or like uh, vegans, you know, oh, like you can't eat meat, you know. <laughs> so, like, I'm actually, like, really open-minded. I talk, I actually talk with everybody and I uh, respect everybody's, you know, you know, their own thing, mm. but um, how do you, uh, yeah. yeah, how do you make a conversation that is comfortable so they won't get offended? Yeah, 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 yeah. basically. Well, well, I mean, real quick, like whenever we're talking to someone, whether it's someone you know and you're very close to, or whether it's like the barista you're getting a coffee from, like, what do we want out of that interaction, man? We want to be understood we want to be respected. On a certain level, we want to be loved. And those three things can make us feel accepted. Like, so that's really what anybody wants when they're having a conversation. So when you're, when you're having a conversation with someone, focus on those aspects, man. Like if you do that, like the conversation's gonna go as good as it can possibly go. The worst thing you can do is force your perspective on them and then get frustrated when they don't understand your perspective because that's just going to create uh that's going to create a conflict that may not be necessary or a or a bigger conflict than necessary yeah like but yeah i'm very quickly i'm thinking that that sometimes we have defense mechanisms so if i'm if, if i see you being an asshole to your mom and i'm like you're an asshole to your mom you'll be like no i'm not you don't know what she's like she's a nightmare right but if i go out and bring you for a drink and sit down with you and go, man, you seem really stressed. You might go, yeah, I'm a bit stressed and I really took it out in my mum, right? It's like the most direct communication is indirect communication, as Kierkegaard says. So, so sometimes whenever someone's anxious, we all are like this. We all get anxious and then we get defensive. And if, the, if that happens, if it's someone else and I'm able to be a non-anxious presence and I'm able to go, listen, this is obviously frustrating for you, something's going on, and you create a non-defensive place where they can begin to express themselves, usually you get to a much more, a much more rich, in, mutually enriching conversation. And it's not like a technique to win people over. It's just like you'll get to, it's like two people arguing in a couple, and they, within five minutes you're arguing like world experts on something that you're seeing on TV. And then maybe one person goes, well, to be honest, I'm actually not so sure. I'm talking like I, I've read, I know everything, but I, maybe I'm wrong. Now, the other person might go, ha, I won, right? Then it'd be an idiot, right? But more likely, they might go, well, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm probably a little bit, you know, much as well. And then, then, then you can have the great conversation. So that's the technique. And then also sometimes to have to create a space where actually it's almost contractually allowed, where you might say to some friends, I, I think it's important for us to have some really difficult conversations. Could we do this once a week? 
from seven to nine, we go to this pub and we're gonna have difficult conversations and we're gonna do one thing. The only rule is that you come back. That's what you do in Ireland, right? You start off at the beginning of the night, you have a pint and you love each other. A few more pints and you're, the, you're swapping kids. And, and, then a few, and then a few pints later, you're fighting, right? And you're knocking each other out and saying, you're the worst person ever. And at the end of the night, says, same time next week? Same time next week, right? So you, you somehow try to create a space going like, no matter how much you hate me, show up next week. Yeah. Oh, man. Thanks for your yeah. question, brother. Yeah. You know, we'll, we'll do our best to get to both of you here. Yeah, no promises. Real quick, Pete, what I heard you saying was like when you're having a conversation, instead of uh, trying to like teach someone something, like go go at it with uh, like, hey, I'm gonna try and learn something, and that can kind of help. Yeah, diffuse it a little bit. Yeah. I don't want to go to that bar between seven. And eight. <laughs> Howdy, what's your name? Paul. Hey, Paul. What's on your mind? I have a good job. I have a place with a lot of room. And Are you just showing off? That's what? it. I got, everybody, I got a good job. Got a nice house. Thanks very much. Good night, everybody. Go back to my seat. I'm well endowed. I'm a lucky guy. Right? And yeah. a, my beautiful girlfriend's always about like, oh, you should have too many things. And like this. Like, what's wrong with having 35 dress shirts, 45 pairs of shoes? Yeah. It's like you don't know debt. Yeah. Like, yeah. no credit card debt. Yeah. Great. Like, tons of space for it. Tons. Like, What's wrong tons with it? Of space for it. <laughs> yeah, that's What's wrong like. with it? Yeah. <laughs> I think you're at the wrong podcast. <laughs> that's the maximalists. They're next door. They're next door. The, the, the line got really long. I wanted to be the third person here. But. Here's the problem. There's no problem at all. There's nothing wrong with it. Why, why would there be anything wrong with owning things that add value to your life? Here's the problem. Many of us own so many things that it's covered up. What's going on in here? The joy, the happiness, the contentment. We buy things not to pursue happiness. You know, it's in the founding documents of our country. Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. That's nonsense. It's life, liberty, and running from suffering. That's what we're really doing right now. And so we buy things to hide the suffering that we're going through. But if you're buying things that add immense value to your life, we're not the deprivationists. Keep your dress shirts. Yeah. The, the, the domain was taken. <laughs> I guess. Uh, Thanks for your question, brother. Thank yeah. you. Howdy. Well, thank you for bringing me up. What's your name? Thank you, Lynn. Yeah. Thanks hey, Lynn. For being What's here. on your mind? I am so excited because you guys have been the teacher for me as the student. They say when the student's ready, the teacher appears. Since I was a year and a half, I was adopted. I found my birth mother who turned out to be homeless. There's a really good story, okay, quickly. I carried all my possessions throughout my whole life. I'm gonna be 60 in a couple years. But what happened is I heard you guys on Dave Ramsey. I hired organizers. I was on Clean Sweep, that TV show, years ago. No, 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 but I thought, oh yeah, this is gonna be it, I'm gonna be organized. But it was you guys. I'm so over the moon and like in love with you guys because, no, no, seriously, because I, I just, all you had to say was, you just need less stuff. Mm-hmm. And we actually had a kitchen fire. We had a kitchen fire. So we had to remodel the whole house. 
I had to live in three storage units or a home with nothing in it. And the whole time I'm going, wow, this is kind of interesting. I feel a little taller. And that changed because I heard you talk about not having stuff. It started to sink in. It started to flip and sink in. And I'm sitting here, I'm almost in tears. I'm sitting here going, my life is going to get better now. It's going to get better. And so really my question, besides saying thank you so much, is how do you stop yourself when you get triggered by trauma? And I have a quick example. I was at work yesterday, and they don't know my history of carrying my stuff. And someone talked about, oh, yeah, we went to this house in Pasadena, and they were hoarders, and blah, 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 blah. And I wasn't a hoarder, but I had so much shame. And so it triggered me. I had to step away, go to another room, and be present. And maybe it's a rhetorical question. i got to be present. But... That's what I want to know. Do you get triggered by past trauma, and how do you walk through it gracefully? You, you, you get it. You, know, you get that, and, and this is one of the biggest problems with, like, we go to the container store and buy all these clutter coffins, <laughs> and then we turn our houses into mausoleums of organiza- organized stuff, right? And that's not the best way to organize your stuff. The the easiest way to organize your stuff is to get rid of most of it, right? And that's not the fundament of your question, but that's, that's what you understand so far. And I think that was what was different about what Ryan and I talk about, because we don't talk about the 67 ways to declutter your garage. Um, but the opposite of what you said occurred to me. I used to be a hoarder, right? In fact, most people in this room at some point in their life have been at least a stage one, if not a stage two hoarder. The people you see on your TV, those are stage five hoarders. And it's easy for us to point and sneer and say, "Ah, at least I'm not like that person. Yeah, but they weren't like that person until they were either, right? And this isn't a judgment of them. It's a confession of my own. I was a hoarder. I was a really well-organized hoarder. I had all those clutter coffins in my basement. And I don't feel shame around that now. I feel liberated that I was able to walk away from that. And all I had to do, just like the stuff, you set the stuff down, right? How do you let go of anything? Letting go isn't something you do. It's something you stop doing. You stop clinging to the excess stuff. You stop clinging to the toxic relationship. You stop clinging to the expectations of other people. You stop clinging to that shame. That's how you let go. Mm. Lovely. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I was going to pick up the trauma bit because that's something I'm interested in. Because tra- one way of thinking about what a trauma is is to think of a trauma as an event, something that happens to you that you're not able to symbolize, you're not able to put it into language, it's overwhelming. So whenever there's a little child, for example, things can be traumatic because the child hasn't really got a strong language. And a guy called Bion, he called this beta elements. A beta element is an event that saturates you. It's, it's, too, it's got a too muchness, something that you can't integrate, you can't understand, but you're overwhelmed by. And one of the things I like about Be Honest is there's this beta element, 
And then he calls the alpha function is what the parent does. The alpha function is the parent soothes the child and maybe gives words to the experience, starts to give words to it. And I like this because what you, what you hear in this is the parent alphabetizes the trauma, right? In other words, brings to alphabetize the beta element and the alpha function, the alphabetization of the trauma. So, and, and actually some people who suffer from primal agony, it's a sense of something terrible is gonna happen. They just feel that something terrible is gonna happen. Um, but it's not gonna happen, it already has, right? It's something in the past that just hasn't been put into words. So what you fear is going to happen is already taking place. In a um, so anyway, so the interesting thing is whenever you feel triggered or traumatized by something, usually something has not been put into words from your past. Something in your life you haven't, you haven't been able to alphabetize. And we need to find ways. And so even this, something like the minimalist becomes a way to alphabetize or understand what it means to be a minimalist. So anyway, I just thought I'd talk about trauma for a second. No, I... Man, I think all of us probably have some level of trauma yeah. oh, that we're all yeah, yeah, trying yeah. to heal from. I'll, I'll just share two things that, um, when it comes to trauma specifically, that helped me. And, you know, hopefully it resonates with you. But trauma is, I used to look at it like it, there are these individual events that happened, and this happened and that sucked, and this happened and that sucked, and that happened and it sucked. But um, I was talking to this trauma expert, and I was kind of just laying it all out there for him. And he was like, you know, trauma is, it's like an onion. There's like these layers. Mm. And when you have one traumatic incident happen, the next one that happens, it just layers on top of that other one. And they're all connected in some way. And I don't know why that just opened my mind up to like really figuring out why certain events were traumatizing and how they built up on each other. And then the other thing um, is I asked him, I'm like, well, dude, like, what do I do? when these, when I get triggered like this. And he was like, talk to that, like for me, it's a bunch of childhood trauma. Mm -hmm. He's like, talk to that little kid. And, and like, what does that little kid need to hear? And how, how is he gonna get through it? And I'll have conversations with myself where I'm like, yeah, that really sucked, didn't it, buddy? Yeah, it did. But that's not happening anymore now, is it? No, it's not. And you don't wanna be like that person, do you? No, man, I don't wanna be like that person. So like talking, whether it was a childhood self or whether it was you know, 20 years ago, that self, that version of yourself, what, what did they need to hear at the time to help them get past it? And for me, like that's, that's been a huge thing that's helped me kind of filter a lot of the trauma. But other thing I'll say is having a good therapist is one of the best tools to have in your toolbox. I agree. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for being here. There are a few people I want to thank before we wrap up. First off, um, if you end up getting a copy of our book, Love People Use Things, we have a great indie bookshop. Lauren's back there. She has some autographed copies of the book. Yeah. Please minimize it afterward. Um, in fact, this is the one book that will show you how to let go of it once you've read it. That should have been the subtitle. <laughs> you can also find it at a local library if, uh, if you don't want to purchase a copy. But instead of uh, one-click purchasing through a giant, well trillion dollar corporation. There are beautiful indie bookshops like the one here and you can, uh, you can support them as well. Um, so I want to thank them for uh, being here tonight. Can we give them a round of applause? Thank you. And what about the Regent Theater? It's the first time we've been here and they've been amazing for us. Yeah. 
What about one of my favorite people on earth? Peter Rollins was here tonight. Thanks so much, man. Thank you, guys. Thank you for inviting oh. me. Thank you. <laughs> he has an outstanding podcast called The Fundamentalist, uh, Fundamentalists. <laughs> Fundamentalists. That's the new venture. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I can't stop. Um, also, you can check him out, uh, PeterRollins.com. You can follow him on social media, um, and you can dive deep with him on Patreon as well. Pete, thank you so much for being thank here. Thank you. Listen, thank you so much. I really love being here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, guys. And since this is a, uh, a hometown show for us now, Ryan and I moved here, I guess, five years ago. It'll be five years ago this year, right? We moved here in end of 2017. And because um, this is what our friend Rob Bell says, this is where people go to tell stories. And um, we knew we wanted to build a podcast studio here and find different ways to tell stories and be able to really ultimately help people heal their relationship with stuff and all of those other relationships that are suffering beneath the stuff. But the minimalists aren't just me and Ryan and a couple microphones. We have a whole team of people, many of whom are, are here in Los Angeles. And I'd like to invite some of them up to the stage right now. Yeah. Danny, Jordan, Sean, Mallory, why don't you get up here? Come on. And if Beulah's here, I'd like her to come up, too. Beulah, you can bring a baby on stage. It's fine. <laughs> um, oh. We're really fortunate to be able to do the work that we do. And I can't believe we get to do this, Ryan. Yeah, me But either, man. it's because of you and the people we, well, that we create with. <laughs> <laughs> This is, uh, this is a large chunk of our team, not everyone, but um, we have Sean, we have Jordan, we have Mallory, Alabama, we have Beulah, we have Danny. They help us create beautiful things that um, help us heal the relationship with stuff for other people. And so it's because of them that all of us are here tonight. And um, Ryan are really grateful for having you here. Yeah. Thank you so much. Uh, last but not least, I want to thank uh, one more person tonight. And that person's you. I, uh, I don't know where you've been before this. We've all been somewhere. We're all here right now. You spent some money to get in here tonight, which is awesome, but you spent your most precious resources. You spent your time and attention. We're grateful for that because there are no refunds for misspent time. Look, I don't know where you're going from here. But um, Ryan, or, Ryan and I are really grateful you decided to spend some time with us. And so on behalf of the whole team, if you leave here tonight with just one message, let it be this. Love people and use things. Because the opposite never works. Thanks for being here, y'all. Thank you, Los Angeles. Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing that's just feeding your greed Oh, I bet that you'll be fine without it